Hi, and welcome to Having New Eyes, a podcast to help you look at things differently, to think, to reflect, to ask questions. The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Marcel Proust. And now here's your hosts, Bob Hotard and Jim Jones. Everybody's talking about how the world's gonna end. Hi, everyone. I'm Bob Hotard in San Antonio, Texas. I'm Jim Jones in Brookline, Massachusetts. And uh, I got to say, Bob, it's good to hear your voice, uh, especially in this time when we're reaching out technologically across uh, geographical boundaries and uh, hearing people that uh, we know and give us reassurances about their lives and their families. It certainly has become the new norm, right? Uh, Everyone seems to, this is how everyone uh, congregates now. This is a new time. I have to say that, you know, when we started this podcast, the idea was that we might be able to shed light on current events, issues, things that are happening every day, and perhaps uh, provide some insights into how to have new eyes, new perspectives about looking at what are some of the issues. And we certainly have a bombardment of uh, issues that are occurring. There's probably a a pretty nice sequence that I think uh, we just managed to slide into from talking about issues of identity, certainly in this time with the changing roles of different people and how we look upon our leadership and some of the people around us into integrity when certainly despite some of the fears and some of the crisis issues that we may have, we want to maintain certain principles that we abide by in our society, the integrity of maintaining those. And because of the coronavirus, it's made a lot of people, including our topic for today, police department and uh, police officers, people who have changed their roles because what has evolved within our society over the last couple of months. My fascination uh, with law enforcement and policing begins when uh, I was a young boy in San Antonio, and my grandpa was a deputy sheriff in the Bear County Sheriff's Department. I just loved to see him dress out and go out on his Friday, Saturday, and Sunday evenings to police, if you will, the uh, cantinas along Zasramora Road. Also, because we used to sit around the radio on a Sunday evening, yes, I said that, sit around the radio, and listen to a show that began with a siren in the opening and closing of a door of a car called So You Want to Be a Cop. And it was basically following police officers around on the streets of San Antonio. So I enter into this uh, dialogue of ours with a lot of anticipation because there's a lot of focus, certainly, on law enforcement and connections to my own youth and growing up. That was probably cutting edge for the time. We've looked it up a little bit. They they've, they found some old archives of that show, but I, I think it was recorded in the late 40s or 50s. Yes. They would go around and, and uh, man on the street and actually follow a police officer. That was pretty forward thinking for the time. And then you fast forward today. It was really hard to, to find a exact number because there are so many shows now. There are 99 TV cop shows, according to IMDb. There are, in the genre of police procedural (laughs) shows, there are almost 300 police dramas that have aired on America. Network, cable, syndicated television, streaming, 
and and there are new shows coming out each year and in fact we've actually talked about a few of those uh on previous episodes live pd uh, body cam where uh, uh we're following the police officer as if we were in literally in their shoes and and seeing the decisions that they're faced with on a on a daily and minute by minute basis and and the live PD going across the country. We're going to go look in now, and the camera zooms in from a satellite show into a tiny town in who knows where, Idaho or or uh, down in Florida or in you know the Valley in Texas. We've come a long way since the since the dragnet days. <laughs> that's for sure. Well, my fascination with the media and law enforcement probably goes back way way early when I was uh, even younger. Because my grandpa used to love the Westerns. So we would go to the old State Theater in San Antonio, Texas, and we'd see Rocky Lane and Lash LaRue and Hoot Gibson, Hopalong Cassidy. And of course, they were the precursors to law enforcement because they rode into the town and they were the good guys. And we always knew that good was going to conquer evil. And so I kind of took these romantic notions of good enforcing the law, trying to be a good person. And I think my first true encounter personally was in elementary school when we used to have this thing called the safety patrol. And I remember the safety patrol because before and after school, when we had like crossing guards before the era of major crossing guards, we had this opportunity as elementary school students to have these kind of lanyards that went across our chest and we got a badge. Mm-hmm. We got a badge that said safety patrol. And the cool thing about it was we could wear the badge all during the school day because we were going to be on duty also in the afternoon. For a little kid, this was a big deal. And I got to tell you that I just have carried this fascination with me through life. I could probably finish every line from I don't know how many years of law and order that any one of the characters would have started because we just had this fascination with their work. You'll be happy to know that that tradition has carried on and forward even into uh, the 90s when my kids were going through elementary school. (laughs) You still have the patrol, uh, traffic patrol. They still wear the vest and get to carry the signs. And I think it's even a uh, badge of courage, so to speak, or you're a little bit higher if you actually get to hold the stop sign on the pole. True. And uh, hanging out in the street. And and the elementary school that they went to is still there today, and obviously, and and they're still uh, uh, kids in patrol, so I assume that that's uh, still carrying on. But that's an interesting observation that, you know, kind of that's where it starts, so to speak, in, in the sense. And yes, it, it's a club or it's a it's a but at the same time, it's their kind of first uh, uh, introduction into, quote unquote, law enforcement. Well, you know, we're never really that far from any of the people, the officials involved in law enforcement, because there's a wide spectrum of what constitutes law enforcement. It could be, depending upon who you are, anybody from the jurors that are selected to sit and make decisions in criminal or civil trials. It could go to the people that investigate crime. And now with the Zoom bombing and some of the hacking that is going on, it it can include the people that are going online to stop this type of uh, criminal behavior. So, you know, it's a wide spectrum. In terms of police, I live about, I guess, about five minutes from the Brookline Police Department. 
again, here in Brookline, I can walk into Boston in five minutes because we're just a couple of blocks away, just kind of a butts Boston. And I picked up the paper, the local Brookline paper two days ago, and the headline was COVID-19 sparks changes in PD. Mm. And as soon as I read that, first of all, it made me very much aware of this crisis that we have, COVID-19, which, you know, whenever there's a crisis, we ask police officers to do what normal human beings do not do, go toward the danger, not away from it. And this idea of sparking changes in PD, to me, is a pure identity statement that says our sense of what police officers do is changing now because of the virus, this change of identity. And with shifts in identity, it means that what are the new principles of integrity to be maintained because of the state of our country, the state of our state, and the state of the town or city that we live in? So that headline in the news was very important for me to make note of. Because I can recall even when we had the marathon bombings, the police departments in all these communities were very much aware of the fear that existed among people about any kind of continuing terrorist attacks. And a lot of it was we didn't even know exactly what happened. So that puts a lot of pressure on police officers. Yeah, it's just the the, the notion of ourselves, if we were invited over, if something happened, we're all going to think twice about getting close to someone or going to a person's house. We just had an incident where an an old uh, high school buddy of ours turned up homeless and we all wanted to jump in and help him. Well, who wants to physically go and meet with him and realizing that this gentleman's been out on the street and the risks that are there, but the police officer, law enforcement, officials, and you could even include the the broader category of first responders, they have to go, they have to think twice, sure, but they have to go to the danger. You know, they have, there's no question for them. They're there. They have to treat the person or help the person or put out the fire, whatever the case may be. So it's, it's just a, a, a different world. Now, don't get me wrong. In looking at the police blotter, you can see that a lot of police officers are involved in some of some of the most what might be mundane types of actions because the first person whenever we call 911 in case of a quote unquote emergency is not a doctor usually it's a police officer somebody in law enforcement so for me to read police officers go to residence because there's a cat in a tree police officers go to residence because female lost phone Police officers go to a parking space because people are arguing over a space being taken. A fire alarm was set off inadvertently. The music was too loud at a party. I love this one. Man stripping in cemetery. <laughs> I don't know, whatever. I mean, you know, what is this? You know, I want to get rid of the clothes with all the COVID-19 on them. I don't know. I, I'm sure there's, there's stories about uh, people arguing over toilet paper now as well. Who knows? Well, another one there was people yelling yelling at each other in the market. So we're going to have that. And we probably already can surmise because of the statistics that about 75 to 80 percent of police work is not what we're seeing on NCIS or uh, Chicago PD. 
It's doing the types of mundane things that restore peace and order within society. But now that's bumped up a level because as I'm reading in some of the current events that I read, the police officers are being asked to assume different types of activities. Uh, Massachusetts, we are basically screening people at the border so that we're very much trying as much as law enforcement can to keep out people coming from out of state. And I got to say it, a lot of it is like profiling people with New York license plates because it's the epicenter of the COVID-19 virus or Rhode Island police officers who are doing the same, but now they're going into parks and it's possible for them to give fines to people because they're congregating and they're not obeying or they're not following any of the guidelines for isolating from each other. It's the, the role, the changing role of policing that I see in the newspaper with some of these current events. Well, and there's the concern about now police departments are being overexposed, right? So they're obviously on the front line. They're dealing with more people on a random basis as they normally do. And so are they are they overexposed to the coronavirus? And how does that affect their job or their ability to protect and serve? And then what about their families? Uh, you talked about in an earlier episode of just doctors not wanting to go home because they've been treating patients, so they sleep in their cars. But you know, what about the first responders? What about the law enforcement officials that are dealing with the general public every day? And so now it's you know you you can't help but think that they're overexposed or they're being the the chances have to be higher for them than they are for most of us who are self quarantined or at least staying home the majority of the time now. I was fortunate because in my professional career, I had an opportunity to stand in front of about 22,000 officers in law enforcement to do professional development with them about ethical decision-making and making choices, ranging from LAPD to LA Sheriff's Department to the other side of the continent to Florida, Dade County Sheriff's Department, along the border with uh, Department of Homeland Security, INS, Department of Justice, where I actually worked for a couple of years before 9-11. And because of that, I, I heard a lot of voices from officers who are just trying to make the best decisions that they can, despite the fact that there are fears. There are fears among people. There are fears among police officers. You know, today, Judging from what I read in the newspapers, we have, as you stated, fears about people working in the area of someone who might have COVID-19, fears of maybe National Guard being activated and called to areas where they might be around infected people and then being with their family, fears of students who want to find a place to live, fears of people who are hearing stories in the news about what happened in Italy or China and wondering about whether or not you're going to catch the virus because it's airborne. And then the basic types of things of people that just want to feed and educate their children and they're encountering challenges. I'm reading about all of these. And again, I'm thinking that when you are in law enforcement, you are not only thrust in the midst of the coronavirus dangers. And a lot of police officers told me and recently talking with a friend of mine in a local police department saying, sometimes you can't think because you have to go in and make physical contact. You don't have time to 
make a decision about who am I in this instance? Am I more concerned about myself or is the integrity of what I do in law enforcement more important? So it's, it's, very, it's very precarious. Think about the difference we, we had or we've seen. We, we know if we've lived through it, but we, we've seen episodes of police shows during the AIDS epidemic. And that, you know, it was the dramatic scene where the police officer or the investigator couldn't think twice. They, they had to help the person. And then blood was transferred. And it was, you know, boom, 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 you know, oh, my God, you know, it was just an obvious thing. And are, are they going to get infected? They had an open wound or and, and blood blood transfer. But this is so different. You know, this is <laughs> this is airborne or this is surface level. And when you think about you know, what a, what a police officer may have to do uh, at a moment's notice coming into a home where they, you know, they've never been into or, or an area where they've never been around and they're having to do their job. They, they can't think about those things. You know, who's going to think, well, do I have a mask on? Oh, I've got to stop and put my gloves on. If they don't have them on yet, too bad. They're there. They have to respond. That's a completely different scenario. There, there's no time for drama there. You have to just react. And thus, you know, become over or super or hyper exposed, if you will. As individuals in our society, whether we are a parent, whether we're a teacher like I was, or an engineer, someone who works uh, with uh, the Internet, uh, as you do, and other people in other roles, there are certain adjectives associated with our identities. For a parent, it might be, well, we expect a parent to be caring, loving be providers. With a a teacher, it might be patient or, again, might be caring. It might be professional. In your profession, again, it might be competent, knowledgeable. One One of the concepts associated with police officers and other people in professions is trust. Because, you know, people are watching police officers They're watching how they conduct themselves because they want to trust them. Every once in a while in the media, we'll get the story about a young, I'm sorry to say, black male that might be shot. And it just seems beyond our comprehension how that could have occurred. And so what happens is that the trust of our law enforcement officers takes a hit. You know, for many, many years, they've had something called the trust list that is published. And this is basically a list of the professions most trusted. In 2000, it was close to something like nurses, for the last 18 years anyway, have always been at the top of the list, followed by doctors and pharmacists and high school teachers. And usually any place from six, seven, or eight down was law enforcement, police department. I'm sad to say that politicians have always been at the bottom of the list. But surprise, surprise, <laughs> it says to me that we look to the, these are the people in the professions that we want to trust them when there are times of danger or fear. And what do we want to see? Do we want to see courage? Do we want to see patience in us? Do we want to see caring as well as the type of distance that they have to maintain to carry on their jobs? and enforce the law, or do we see signs of something that there's a crack in the integrity that they're supposed to have in order to work successfully with the public? 
Well, what about the neighborhoods too, where it's the exact opposite? When they see a police officer, it's it's immediate distrust. It's they clam up, they walk the other way, they avoid them at all costs because it's been such a period of time where in a however you would describe it politically correct, but a, a rougher neighborhood, let's just say, uh, to keep it simple, where there's been so much turmoil, there's so much violence on the street that there is that, like I said, the exact opposite. There's the distrust of the law enforcement. Uh, they, I've seen a few stories where uh, NFL players will go on ride-alongs with, uh, with police departments in some of the larger cities. And that was the exact experience football player even though american football player even though he was well known and recognizable if you will never even was noticed because all they saw was the was the flak vest on with the uh whatever pd you know logo on the front or back and as soon as he came up even though he was saying hey you know i'm uh xyz or you know i'm so-and-so from the uh chicago bears or from the you know jacksonville jaguars no, they were, they clammed up, walked the other way. So we have to think about that side of the spectrum as well, because yes, in our, in our good side, or when we think about how things should be, yes, there should be that, that trust, but then we also have to be real about it and understand that there are people who their trust list would be completely different. I don't want to say inverted, but completely different. Wouldn't you think? Yes, I do. Because obviously People are going to exhibit human behavior that we exhibited, have exhibited over decades, over centuries, which is to stereotype people, stereotype the donut-eating police officer, the police officer that sits in his car and may not be actively engaged because the car is where a lot of police officers were doing their patrolling. And so certain images and stereotypes occur during the 1990s. The administration allotted a lot of money to the Department of Justice to promote something called community policing. Working for the Department of Justice during that time and being involved with professional development, the idea was to go into communities and bring people from the community together with institutions from the community like universities or the clergy, business owners, and police officers to have dialogue around this idea of how can we create more trust in your law enforcement officers? How can we work together with the community? I was reading an article the other day that occurred in another New England state, Maine, and it was basically about some vigilantes, if you will, who a couple armed with guns went to a residence and put a log, a tree, a log, in the back of a car that was parked in the driveway. They were trying to hinder the people that lived inside who were from out of state and who were supposed to be on this 14-day quarantine when you come into a, uh, this, their state from another state. They were trying to hinder them from leaving. Well, of course, someone sees this. Who do they call first when they dial 911? They call the police. The police show up and right away, there is the scenario of for a perfect community policing professional development session. How does a police officer walk in to this scenario? Because how he speaks, how she presents herself, 
the type of communication that either male or female officers present in this situation is either going to alienate themselves from these people, these quote-unquote vigilantes who see themselves as upholding the law and making sure that it's enforced, that these people stay in quarantine, or is it going to be an explanation that's given that basically assuages some of the fears, because it was fear, maybe, that made them act this way to begin with, how is that going to be handled? That's a tough situation because these are law enforcement people thinking on their feet. And I was reading that article and thinking of so many stories that I've heard about people that they don't often know what kind of communication tools they're supposed to use to defuse situations before they escalate. So what I want to know is, how do you get a log? I mean, I yeah, I just have to think, did they did they cut down a tree to do that? Yes, they cut down a tree. It was the tree on the lot. It was the tree on that lot. On the on the people's lot that they were trying to keep so that it fell right in front, right in front of the car, blocking the driveway. Unbelievable. These are these are strange times, Bob. These wow. are not the common times that we uh, we once knew. <laughs> I wonder, you know, would we say that, gee, what was the identity of those people? If we could take them out separately and interview them, you say, well, I'm a father. I'm a teacher at the local high school. I'm a, a retired person. Uh, you know, our identities shift because of these crisis, the crises that we're talking about. And that's the whole point of how we look at the news and develop some eyes to see something is happening beneath the surface beyond just coronavirus, these are the actions of the medical professionals. These are the actions of law enforcement. These are the actions of our leaders and our teachers who now have to teach at home, online. Something is happening embedded below that that I hope we as a society can see because when we do that, basically what happens is sometimes we develop more empathy for the people who are put into these roles. How much more empathy would we have for a teacher now saying, wow, now the teacher is at home. She has three of her own kids to watch, and she's teaching online. And by the way, her husband was laid off of the job, and they're wondering about their next mortgage payment. Yeah, that's... I'd like to think that in in the United States of America, we'd have some empathy for our neighbors and people around us in these roles. So I have a perfect uh, story to interject, and and it it balances the the fallen tree. Although that that scenario, if we need to come back to it, let's come back to it. But... In the, in the neighborhood we live in, there was uh, the, the online kind of neighborhood app where people were talking back and forth. And you probably heard stories. So we're in, this is the beginning of April 2020. So what's happening normally this time of year in high schools? The kids are getting ready or the students are getting ready for prom. They're planning their graduation. Where are they going to go to college? All of those normal things have just been completely either eliminated or completely changed. And so one particular neighbor's daughter was turning 21 yesterday and, uh, uh, you know, was feeling just, you know, depressed and down because, well, she couldn't have a party with her friends. There wasn't any way to really celebrate it. So uh, someone came up with the idea, and I, I think it's not unique to this area. There have been other areas as well. Uh, let's just have a, a, a drive-by parade to, to wish her happy birthday. Of course, you know, about the only down part of it is it's, you know, unnecessary uh, uh, driving. So I guess there's environmental issues there. But past that, 
what a what an awesome way we participated in it and you know surprise just in a little suburban neighborhood in in north san antonio there were 20 cars that that lined up with several people in them just driving by the house and of course the parents had the had the uh uh the their daughter out on the lawn with that big happy birthday sign and she wasn't all that embarrassed she was actually very humbled by it and very happy about it but everyone just drove by and wished her happy birthday and waved and you know some other kids had made signs and but pretty impressive just as you know a suburban area i guess i'll shout out to encino park i got to give them credit so uh that's the neighborhood and uh north side san antonio but uh, I did think about the possibility of should I get out and show exactly how to make a proper margarita and say, you know, congratulations, you're now the legal drinking age, but that probably wouldn't have been. I'm not sure if the parents would, would have approved or not, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, we, you can have fun. It's okay. You know, you can have, you, you can do things that make people just feel a little bit more happy. I'm, I'm walking the dog down the street, something else, another trend, uh, family just had a bucket of sidewalk chalk please draw something as you pass by uh or or write a note and uh and people are drawing on the sidewalk and uh, that's be- become a trend I- i've seen as well the the search for uh hidden bears in people's front yards or windows or uh somewhere on their on their property that kids can go by and count as they uh as they go for a walk so it- it's when you think that can be the good in people that there there are ways to to overcome these kinds of challenges uh, that don't necessarily involve the, the other side where you're saying, well, I'm going to enforce the law by forcing this person to, to stay in their home, even though they could safely get in their car and drive to uh, pick up a prescription or whatever they would need to do without uh, getting near, near someone and, and uh, possibly infecting them or ex- et cetera. You know, through my lens, through my eyes and looking at, incidents at events like that, experiences like that. Again, I see this issue of identity because we all live in our neighborhood and many times that can mean living separately, waving hello, maybe on your front doorstep to someone or whatever. But the idea also is is that as human beings, we have certain identities. Sometimes, like we said before, it might be because we're we're seniors, our age, or because we're young, because we're gay, we're straight, we're whatever we are. We have, we're a certain religion. What happens is, is that we want to belong. And when we see an occurrence like this in the neighborhood, I wonder how many people say, well, I want to belong to the neighborhood. I'm going to bypass watching my favorite episode of Law and Order today, and I'm going to go out and participate in this because I'll show my unity with the neighborhood. I'll belong. And because of that, I think there's a lot of people now that are trying to find ways that show this group unity. You know, I don't want to stand out there by myself. I want to look around and say, yeah, my neighbors are with me. We're, we're a front. We're united. We have a group identity here that's a positive identity. And I, I see different types of evidence that that is happening. I was reading not just about local stories, but in Israel. You know, Israel, there are many Orthodox Jews, religious Jews, and now police officers are being asked to go in and close the synagogue and disperse them because it's just considered dangerous that the coronavirus might be spread. You know, a religion, that's very much, my religion is very much a part of my identity. I am connected so much to that. And the synagogue is my group identity where I belong. 
And what happens is, is that so many people now in other countries besides Israel are saying, my churches are closed. The synagogue is closed. Police officers in Israel go there and they have to disperse people and they're encountering violence. They're encountering people who throw stones at them and they're being alienated because of this particular situation. In Greece, the police officers that are being asked at the border to turn away people from Syria, often with clubs because they are persistent, to keep them away. And I'm even reading in parts of Paris with the yellow vest in Kenya where there's just violence that's created because now people that are trying to enforce the, the statutes of the city around coronavirus and isolation are being looked upon as the other, the enemy. It's, it's frightening, but again, it's about feeling this fear. And one of the ways that I'm seeing uh, uh, the trend the challenges that the police state is having to do, federal law enforcement, even in other countries, but what people are doing to band together is starting to make masks as they see that, yes, it does make sense to uh, to wear masks. So even, even in our virtual get-together that we have, a virtual happy hour, we call it on, at, at work, people are sharing how, how they can make uh, different masks. So that is another way where people are wanting to bond and try to do something to uh, uh, to be part of the solution rather than uh, uh, just live in the in the fear state, if you will, all the time. Uh, I, I think it just goes to show that, you know, when we talk about identity, it's it's a group of people banding together to say, hey, we can we can do something. We can have agency. These things, I think, are are meaningful to us as a society, as a nation. It, it's it's worldwide. And it's a good contrast to that other visual that you have of a synagogue where they're they're forcing people, you know, for the better of everyone, to practice social distancing. You see synagogues, mosques, uh, churches, where they're allowing people to come in, but they're forced, you know, they're, they have lines or circles or where people have to stand so they maintain eight eight feet away. That's a stark contrast to where you're, you're just forced to be an individual and separate, yet we can do things at, in the, maybe in the neighborhood level or in the apartment or condo level or where it, it means something to the integrity of each individual, that it, it's reassuring, it's, it's banding together as a, as a group. I am struck by your language because basically you said we band together. Another way we might say is, is that we collaborated. You create something that did not exist before. That parade, that idea. The wonderful thing about this time, at least in terms of what we profess when we say reading, hearing, listening, watching our iPads and television and hearing the radio, is we get ideas because we hear about, we're united through the media, we hear about what's happening in other parts of the country and we say, hey, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's have a parade. That's a good idea. Let's make masks. That's a good idea, etc." And people are making decisions because many times when we don't know exactly what to do, sometimes it depends upon getting together with people. It was right after 9-11 when I was doing a leadership seminar with members of the Department of Justice in Dallas. And I remember that I came there all prepared as a 
teacher doing my professional development, had my agenda all worked out. And it didn't take me more than a couple of seconds to face a group that was obviously in pain. These were people that had lost colleagues in the towers because they were working with immigration, INS. These were people that didn't quite know how to do, as many people don't know, how to deal with grief. But within that room, I did have a dilemma in that I knew that I had to confront what I was supposed to be doing there because I was asking myself, who am I in this situation? So I chucked out my notes and basically it became a time to hear people talking. What happens in times like that, when we hear other people talking, we get ideas and pretty soon it would be a phrase like, well, I, as I listen to other people in the room, I realize that right now I should be blank, blank, blank. As I hear other people in the room, I realize I'm not the only one that's feeling the sense of not knowing what to do. And it was good for people to do that. And we often don't know how to handle that. But sometimes it is within a group that we can band together, confront dilemmas that we face, and actually figure out who are we in times like this. I'm thinking of a current event that I just read about, about a Minnesota state trooper that was following a speeding car and stops the car. And it's a doctor rushing to the hospital. Of course, in his professional mode, he is reminding her that it is inappropriate to be speeding despite the emergency and maybe you're late. She gives him her license and he goes back to the car. And speaking later, she's saying, I knew that he was going to be coming back and he'd have a ticket for me and she gave me my driver's license. And when the officer came back, he handed her her ID card and not a ticket, but basically just a warning or a caution. And he said, you know, you have to be careful because it's dangerous to be speeding. And because he noticed that she was in the medical profession and a couple of discarded masks on the seat beside her, he gave her two masks from the stock that he carries as a state trooper whenever he has to encounter groups of people, and she drove off. But that wasn't the end of it because there was an aftermath in that she was thinking about the decisions that he made about her in that moment. Mm. And I like that story because it also tells me I can't be quick to judge what people are doing when they don't know what to do. And I, I learned something from, again, reading deeply, a little bit deeper into the story on a human level. Something that, that you said, Jim, and, and you say it from time to time, it cleared my, my lens. It's like I put, uh, it was like eyedroppers when you have contacts, re-wetting re solution. When you're faced with challenges, like you mentioned, getting ready to speak to the, to the law enforcement or to the, uh, uh, to the group of officials after 9-11, you ask yourself, who am I? And I don't ever recall doing that myself and, and having the, the wherewithal to reflect about my identity before I began a presentation in front of a group or before I am faced with a dilemma, if you will. And that's an interesting, that's an interesting approach. That's an interesting question. 
Because immediately, if you ask yourself that question, who am I? What should I be? Who should I be in this situation? It kind of clears away everything about, am I going to remember what I'm supposed to say? Have I prepared enough? Am I overprepared? Am I underprepared? Uh, will, they, will they like me? Will, will I perform well? Blah, blah, blah. If you just think about who you are, then you kind of have that relaxing answer of, I'm me. This is who I am. And I should respond like I want to respond, like I should respond. I should, and you, you started to just naturally say it. I should be saying this or responding in this way. We, we have a, a technique in web design and in, in creative design, and it's an exercise called yes. And, and I'm not sure who thought of it, or, but it's a typical don't criticize. Don't say, yeah, okay, but what if this happens? Or, you know, you know, you can't do that because just say yes. And and then add to it, add to what the person has suggested. Yes, start to start, no, no matter what. Yes, and can we also, so instead of saying, oh, but you can't do that because of, or you have to think about the negative, you say yes, and can you overcome the development uh, challenge if X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z? And it's kind of the same thing. When you, when you say, who am I in this situation? I should be doing this and yes, that, and I can also help them in a different way, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's not just a question because think of it this way. In one context, a police officer or somebody in law enforcement is someone who has to have courage. In another context, it might be someone who has to communicate well. It can happen to a teacher. In one context, I'm someone who has to enforce some classroom rules about talking or behavior. And in another context, it might be almost like being a parent or being exhibiting some idea of caring. Think about it as a parent. Let's reduce it down to being a parent. It's not so much as saying, oh gosh, look, there are my two kids. There they are. They're getting into it. They're arguing over a toy. It's not so much as always asking a question of who am I in this moment, but maybe one of the things that strike you as, all right, come on now, Jim, be patient. You don't want to come in all heavy law enforcement, all heavy separating, raising your voice. Maybe it's sometimes just saying, be patient, use a calm voice. It's speaking to yourself in that way. But again, my context was saying, basically, you're telling me this is who I am in times of conflict between my two kids. I'm a patient. I'm a caring person. I'm a good listener. I don't raise my voice. And I think that's what happens because I was reading an incident the other day about what happened at some of the old soldiers' homes that are situated around the state and in other states in New England where senior retired veterans go to live. And what was discovered, basically, in a nutshell, was that there had been eight cases of coronavirus that had broken out, but the director of the home, the superintendent, I believe they call him, had made a decision, confronted with a dilemma of, well, do I make this known or do I wait and see whether or not this is 
something that's going to be contained right there. And faced with that dilemma, because it was a life and death dilemma, basically, they didn't report it. Somebody leaked it. An employee leaked it. Somebody in the labor union leaked it. The governor got a hold of the story. And basically, by the time that they were contacted, or even the mayor of that town knew about it, there were 15 dead. I'm sure that the superintendent of the old soldier's home was not this heartless human being, but dealing with the fear of this outbreak, dealing with not wanting for people, the, the loved ones, the families of these veterans, not to, not to panic or worry about what was happening. Maybe he made a choice or a decision that was not the best one at that time. He's been relieved of his position now, and they're removing veterans from this home because it's gotten to be a very bad uh, life and death situation. But these are the kinds of things, dilemmas, the choices to be made as individuals when you're in positions of leadership. And there is no good answer, but at least we can maybe read about, hear about some of these stories and place ourselves, take their perspective and not be so quick to judge when we know whether you're the doctor that has to decide who's going to get this bed when you have the mother over here who is this or the child over here who is that or the man over here who has coronavirus. Those are tough decisions to make. And I think those of us who consume the media have to also think about the dilemmas that they face and not be so judgmental at times. That, that story of the home, and we've had a case here in San Antonio as well, where a number of patients in a nursing home uh, contracted the coronavirus. And there, there was a kind of an interesting picture that was part of the lead of the story in one of the on, uh, online publications here, the Rivard Report, where you saw a husband and wife looking into a window of a building. And now that on its own doesn't seem like much, but having a, a, a brother who's a brain injury patient in a, in a uh, nursing facility, I immediately recognize, oh, that's, yeah, that is a definite nursing facility. And that's all they can do to come visit their loved one is to stand on the outside of the building and look in the window. And, the, you know, that that hit me where I realized that, you know, yes, we were already told you know, a couple of several weeks ago, you know, the policies are changing and visitation is limited. And even the caregivers now, I think the most recent edict from the mayor or the, the, the rules gar governing uh, nursing homes in the area is that nursing facilities or, or nurses or caretakers can only work at one location where it's common, where they may work a couple of days for a client and then go to another facility for a few more days instead of working, you know, an entire week in, in one facility. But now they have to limit that. So there's all these new kinds of rules, but then you have to think about the patients who not say rely, but it's, it's, it's common for them. They're, they're visited every day by their loved ones. That's stopped instantly. No one, but the, but the facility. And there's certainly not a, you know, it's usually one or two nurses and maybe a, uh, what they call CNAs, care nursing assistant, that are for a whole wing of patients. And so that's, that's a different scenario. And then it tests who we are and it tests, 
looking in a window is that as close as we're going to be able to come to to being supportive to them if they're dying so it's it's just not a it's not a good scenario any way you look at it well i think that's a perfect metaphor this idea of outside looking in because that's who we are when we're looking at the news we're seeing the media we have countless people leaders governors presidents members of the cabinet and we're on the outside looking in and we're watching and we're making judgments about them and perhaps i think again our whole concept here is about how do we look and see and think about what we're seeing when this old soldier's home was basically closed the governor had a decision to make and it was a decision basically about law enforcement because he decided i'm going to send an investigator, actually a former federal prosecutor, I'm going to send an investigator in to look at what happened there. Was there something criminal that occurred there? A lot of people would say, wow, that's the governor using a lot of power and is threatening a lot of people in their positions. But, you know, in our state, the governor does have the power to block or close a border. He does have the power to say the synagogue or the church is going to be closed and I don't want you to be congregating. He has stated, I'm not going to issue a statement that becomes a, a rule or a regulation where you can't do that. I hope people will do that on their own. But this whole idea now of what's happening calls into question, especially with law enforcement as one group or governors as another group, what is the power of authority? A lot of people who know history think about what happened in Nazi Germany in 1933, when a crisis, in this case, the bombing of the Reichstag, the legislated building in Germany at that time, Adolf Hitler, who was the chancellor, there was an act instituted called the Enabling Act. Now, when you have a, an act that was instituted that is stated in terms of, this is a law to remedy distress. Hey, I'm all for remedying distress. Who doesn't want to remedy distress? But the Enabling Act basically gave him the authority or dictatorial powers as long as this threat occurred. Now, we know what happened within Nazi Germany after those years because he had those powers. But I think we're also looking at our leadership and thinking about the power and how much of it that they are going to exercise during this time. How much power will police officers exercise when they're walking on that golf course and they see people playing and say, I'm sorry, you have to disperse, as they did in Rhode Island? How much power, it's not the same thing, but will a, will a police officer here in Massachusetts, several, stand out at the Starbucks line? People want their coffee. They want their caffeine, Bob. <laughs> and they're lining up and police officers are being sent out to basically tell them, drive off, the line's too long, they're blocking traffic. Now, I don't think when they signed up, they were thinking about, hmm, I'm going to be standing out in the street here, having to make a decision, where do I cut off the line? Is it the uh, 2015 uh, uh, Ford uh, SUV, or is it over here? You know, is it the family that's in the car, or is it the guy that looks like he's a professional, and he's wearing a tie, and he needs his caffeine? These are different levels of decisions. I haven't seen a press conference yet where there is not some 
law enforcement uh, personality, personnel standing behind our governor. The other day when the Patriot plane arrived from China with one million masks to distribute, the governor was there on the tarmac stating uh, that they were trying to ensure the safety and security of medical personnel and people and standing right behind him were officers. There's just police officers and law enforcement everywhere, but you have to wonder, are these people who were exercised their new powers and authorities in a way that is acceptable by society and not be seen as abuse? So again, questions to ask ourselves as we look at this, because it does concern us as people in the society. Sure, sure it does. And there's the the story that came out this week from the ICE Detention Center in uh, in Louisiana. And supposedly there are 37,000 people detained in facilities described by even government inspectors uh, and, and officials themselves, prisoners that are, they're crowded, they're dirty. And the Department of Homeland Security doctors say they pose an imminent risk and to the health and safety of the detainees and the public. But what are the decisions of the people in power in those institutions or that, that govern those institutions when there is a coronavirus case or an outbreak? These are immigrant people. Are they citizens? Does it matter? <laughs> <laughs> they're human beings. So, you know, we, we get to that, uh, you know, why are they there? All those, all those questions. But now it's, well, is something going to be done? And, you know, this isn't just a Rikers Island or, you know, an, an island. At set. No, this is, uh, I believe that this was near Lafayette, Louisiana. So it's not like uh, you can just say, well, well, that's just in a prison. There's people that work in the prison come travel back and forth. They have to. It, it, it's a job where they, they can't quarantine. They, they can't self-quarantine. They have to go to work. It's, it's going to affect us. And we, we have to watch the choices that the people in power make because it's, it's going to have an effect on... It's, there, there's more and more life and death decisions that are being made much more often than, than normal. Whether you are the president of a country, whether you are the governor of a state, whether you are a law enforcement official or the head of a police department, either locally here in Brookline or Boston, or whether you are a citizen walking the streets of Cambridge, Massachusetts, right across the river from us, you're going to have to think about the types of decisions that you make as human beings about how you maintain your own sense of integrity to your principles and who you are. I mentioned the citizen of Cambridge, Massachusetts, because a citizen over there perhaps asked themselves, things are happening around me. What should I be doing? And this person, actually there were a couple of them, took it upon themselves to become a vigilante, if you will, that was the word used, to basically walk around and record on video or call police about incidents that were occurring. In some cases, these were minor incidents. In some cases, they were things that had escalated to people getting too close with each other and arguments uh, occurring. But again, 
these were people that it's easy to point fingers and say, oh, well, that was just vigilanteism. Oh, that was using too much power. I think many times we have to put ourselves in the shoes of some people, again, who are trying to make decisions and they're not very easy. Maybe I put that phrase out another way is perspective taking. In 2009, Bill Gates gave a TED Talk. And during the TED Talk, Bill Gates had a container, a glass container in front of him. And he opened it up and he said, you know, I see no reason why only poor people should be worried in third world countries about whether or not they catch malaria or not. And I think maybe you ought to know what that's like. And he opens it up and there's mosquitoes in it and they're released. Now, we know these mosquitoes were harmless. They were not mosquitoes, anopheles mosquitoes that were carrying malaria. But he was trying to drive home a point, maybe excessively, maybe a lot of fear in the audience, about taking perspectives of the people who are sometimes underserved. I mean, I think about while this coronavirus is happening, you have domestic violence that is now going to be focused more within a home or continued more because it was going on before. Mm-hmm. And who will we call? We'll probably call police officers in. Or maybe how about kids living in abused homes? What's going to happen to them? I mean, there's just a lot. Are the shelters going to even be open? Oh, that's true. If, if they try to seek refuge, can they even go? And who's going to make the decisions about that? The, the same person I spoke earlier, uh, the, the homeless person, we, we had to find him a, a shelter because he couldn't stay in the, in the place where he was staying any, any longer. All of the shelters in San Antonio are, are shut down. They, they have closed their intake process. They can't. They don't have the, the, uh, the wherewithal to do testing or to risk that chance. So then what happens? I have seen uh, pictures of areas around the country where they are mapping out plots on a parking lot eight feet away where homeless people can set up camp. So you can you can have this parking spot, skip a parking spot because that's about eight feet. And then the next parking spot, another homeless person can have that. That is just a talk about perspectives. That's a has you look at things completely differently than before, whereas it, oh, that's just an area of homeless people over there. Well, no, now you're coming across all types of scenarios and dilemmas that we, we haven't been faced with before. If we can, we want to cooperate and collaborate within our communities. If we can, we want to do what we see in the media about different groups of people that are coming together to produce PPEs working together in neighborhoods, or sometimes it's just a show of appreciation as a group, giving applause to the nurses and doctors on a shift leaving a hospital. Yes, yes. To sometimes say that, you know what, whether or not you define it as agency, to call someone who's older and check in and see how they're doing, to, as I do, this is by habit, write it down and I'm documenting, maybe sometimes just in phrases, some of the things that are unfolding daily in the news and in our my personal life with my wife. Because these are actually ways, again, that we are doing something because someday your grandkids, mine, are going to read about this and it might seem a little unbelievable to them other than if they were to watch also, and when we talk about 
what's on television is this rash of these pandemic movies that have now come back from the past so that we can see how uh, Morgan Freeman was handling it when he was the president or Dustin Hoffman went uh, as a colonel in the army, went to contain a pandemic in Montana. So I think it's important to be also thinking about how, what we do and maybe documentation in our own little way is important, or maybe as you and I do, to speak about and have dialogue around these issues. You said it before, Jim, there, there is a beginning, middle, and end to everything. We're certainly uh, uh, at the beginning of this, or hopefully somewhere close to the, to the middle, but there will be an end and there, there will be uh, brighter but different times uh, ahead. So uh, that's a, a, good, uh, a good cue to say we've reached the uh, end, of, uh, end of this episode, but also uh, we've poignantly led nicely into our, our next uh, episode, which will be a focus on immigration and maybe the stories, more stories of, of how the coronavirus has affected that, which, you know, six months ago was a pretty hot topic, maybe. Now, not so much today, but those people are still there, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, that story of the ICE detention, they were actually making a video uh, with just uh, protest signs that they were writing down on a piece of paper that uh, many have done in the past before saying, you know, hey, we think someone's uh, infected here in our in our facility. So there's much to talk about and lots to uh, to record. And as you said, this would be uh, it's, it's just one way that we can uh, leave a legacy for those to come and for for people maybe to just have a little bit of uh, relief in their day and and listen to a podcast and and think differently about things maybe have new eyes thank you bob thanks jim appreciate it well there you have it and we hope you'll be part of this conversation as we share our thoughts and ideas our goal as jim says is to make you think and after you've thought about each topic reach out to us on facebook and instagram at Having New Eyes Podcast and on Twitter at HNE Podcast. Be sure to use the hashtag Having New Eyes or HNE and join us in the Season 1 Dialogue as we explore topics like identity, integrity, law enforcement, and immigration. You've been listening to Having New Eyes, a podcast by Bob Hotard and Jim Jones. Download Having New Eyes on Apple Podcasts, Google Play for Android, Spotify, TuneIn, and Stitcher Radio, or on any of your favorite podcast apps. Jim thanks the many students over the decades who were his teachers on a human level. Yes, he was making mental notes. Bob would like to thank his family and the many coaches, teachers, and mentors for the support, encouragement, and inspiration. Find him on Twitter at Bob H. Web Design. Some portions of today's program may have been pre-recorded. Music by Jay Kleiner from the album I Am Me, live from the living room. Stream Jay's music on SoundCloud.com. H&E is recorded in San Antonio, Texas at the studios of Game Day Media Enterprises. Audio engineer is Jason Barrera. Executive producer, Bob Hotard. All rights reserved. I'm Becky Steinmetz. Remember, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.